For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this afternoon, The Persecuted Seed. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So we're back in Revelation 12, and in Revelation 12, we are considering two great signs now that appear in heaven. Uh, They appear from the place where God is revealed uh, as enthroned and administering his rule and reign over creation. They take place, or they're given from heaven. And they're given to God's eschatological prophet, the Apostle John, and the Apostle John sees two great signs. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, with a garland of 12 stars on her head, a woman that we've identified now with the people of God throughout redemptive history, and a second great sign, he sees a great fiery red dragon, And that fiery red dragon here depicted with diadems upon his seven heads, uh, ten horns upon his heads, all of that indicative of of this dragon having global authority, having global power. And that dragon identified for us uh, in particular in verse 9 as that serpent of old uh, called the devil and Satan. We don't have to speculate there much on who that dragon dragon represents. So as we have seen now, the, the conflict between this woman and this dragon Uh, originated in the garden in Genesis 3, where this dragon, uh, disguising himself as it were, as a lowly garden snake, acted with blasphemous treachery and murdered the woman and her husband. Uh, Far from undermining the plans and purposes of God, however, Satan merely succeeds in furthering those plans uh, with God's providence. And the Lord announces, even in the midst of that curse upon the serpent in the garden, the Lord announces a gracious promise that would determine from that point forward the course of human history, the course of redemptive history. It's a promise that would dictate the terms of a prolonged conflict that exists between the serpent and the woman, a conflict that would focus upon the promised birth of a future child. Now that promise is given in the context of judgment pronounced upon the serpent in Genesis chapter three. And I'd like to ask you to turn there with me to Genesis chapter three. And I want us to see this promise in its context. The promise given in the words of God to the serpent from Genesis chapter three, and that beginning in verse 14. So for his treachery, for his deceit, for this fall, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, shall bruise or strike your head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise or strike his heel. So in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of the tragedy of the fall, there's this promise of hope. The woman is going to give birth to a seed, and that uh, uh, refers to a descendant there in that, uh, in verse 14, That's a noun, it's singular, it's masculine, 
And so a male child will be born to the woman and he, singular masculine, shall literally strike. He'll deliver a sharp blow to your head, although you will strike or deliver a blow to his heel. Now this promise uh, has been seen historically as messianic. Uh, It's obviously messianic. This is referring to Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. The earliest messianic understanding of this text is recorded before the time of Christ in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from the third century BC. And in the Septuagint, this is uh, interpreted in that translation, interpreted messianically. This is a a promise regarding the future Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And among the, the many arguments in support of this, we have the explanation of Paul himself in Galatians chapter three, where in verse 16, Paul notes the extension of this promise made to Abraham and to his seed. And to quote Paul, he does not say and to seeds as of many, as of plural, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So, Plurals and singulars matter in scripture, don't they? Like we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. We are, we're to study all of the words. All of the words come from God himself. Even the tenses of those words, even the plurality or singularity of those words. Now, as we began to consider last week, the preservation, the propagation of that line, the line of the woman that would give birth, so to speak, to this promised seed, the propagation of that line, the preservation of that line would come through much labor and much pain. Genesis chapter three, look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. Isabon is the word. Your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground for your sake in toil. That word is Isabon, same word. So the, the word referring to the sorrow of the woman in childbirth, is the same word used to refer to the toil of Adam in bringing forth bread for his family. In toil, in isabon, in sorrow, in difficulty, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's going to be pain. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be adversity uh, associated with the woman in childbirth and with Adam in his work. In other words, there's going to be toil in subduing the creation, in bringing forth what God would promise as as a new creation. There's going to be pain. There's going to be difficulty and adversity in this life. It will be through trial. It's going to be through tribulation, through labor, through sorrow, that this promised seed is going to come into the world. And it will be trial and tribulation, labor and sorrow that will attend the seed of the woman in this world. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face difficulty. We're going to face suffering. That birth, that first painful birth when Eve gave birth to Cain, for example, that pain, that sorrow that attends childbirth is typological of the pain and the sorrow that that attends our walk in this world as we live for the Lord Jesus Christ, as God is bringing about his kingdom. That kingdom is brought about through the judgment of the wicked. Uh, Those who persecute the seed, it's going to be accompanied by pain. And although it was said that Adam would return to the dust from which he came, Adam nevertheless understood that this was a promise from God of a future seed. Where Adam had been Ish and his wife Isha, in verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve, it's a word that means life, because she would be the mother of all living. 
So in the midst of the curse, there's this promise of hope. Adam understood that promise. Hope in the midst of sorrow, hope in the midst of pain, hope for future victory. This seed would crush the head of the serpent and hope for future glory. And this becomes typological of our own travails through this life. Typological of the tribulation that will attend the experience of the church in her witness for Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And in our wilderness wanderings, we're going to face travail. Uh, The Lord speaks of that in Matthew 24. Listen to this with me. On the Mount of Olives, the Lord is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to his disciples in Matthew 24. And Jesus said to them in verse four, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these, your new King James says, are the beginning of sorrows. Literally, that translates uh, birth pains. Literally, all of these are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, if we know anything about birth pains, as we've said before, birth pains increase in frequency and increase in severity until the birth comes. We know that to be true of the age in which we live. Uh, Evil men and imposters will grow what? Worse and worse. Things get worse and worse and worse. The pain increases in frequency and in severity. The persecution increases, increases in frequency and in severity until the birth of the new age, until the birth of a new creation. Verse nine. Jesus says to his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end, to the end shall be saved. He who endures, it's going to take endurance to make it to the end, And the gospel of this kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So although the consequences of Adam's fall are indescribably tragic, God promises that the serpent would eventually be overcome through a child that is born to the woman. And from Genesis 3 onward, the focus of the Bible And frankly, the focus of the serpent is centered upon this promised seed. As the account continues, and as the birth of that promised seed is delayed, a contrast is developed between two lines that descend from Eve. Adam and Eve had many children. They had many children. But Genesis 4 introduces Cain as representative of the line of the serpent, and Genesis 5 introduces Seth as representative of the line of the woman. Cain's line, including Lamech, and those who descend from him, that line is marked by murder, marked by death. Seth's line is described as those who walk with God, those who call upon his name. The two lines become outwardly distinguished by their conduct. By their conduct, men give evidence of belonging to one seed or the other. In other words, you'll know them by their fruit. What line do you belong to? Do you belong to the line of the serpent or do you belong to the line of the woman? Are you of the seed of Cain or are you of the seed of Seth, so to speak? Uh, You belong to one or the other and the Bible describes these two lines as being distinguishable by their 
covenant. And we see that in several places in the Bible, many places in the Bible. But there's an obvious distinction in John chapter 8 in regard to the Lord's ongoing conflict with the Pharisees. Listen to this in John chapter 8, verse 39. The Lord says to the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, Abraham, representative of the line of the woman, so to speak, right? If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham didn't act in that way. You do the deeds of your father, the Lord says to the Pharisees. They claim to be descendants of Abraham. And although they may have been Abraham's physical descendants as Pharisees in in Jerusalem, the Lord corrects them and identifies them as seeds of the serpent. They are the seed of the serpent. They said to him, they said to the Lord, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. That is an offhanded jab at the Lord Jesus Christ who was born to a virgin. They accused him, them, of having Jesus out of wedlock. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if you were of the seed of the woman, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. In other words, what line are they in? Are they of the seed of the serpent or are they of the line of the seed of the woman? The children of God and the children of the devil. The promised corporate seed of the woman, the promised corporate seed of the serpent, and they are distinguished by their conduct. The Pharisees did what their father taught them to do. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. John says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We looked at that text earlier, right? There's a moral test, the one who practices righteousness, and there's a love test, the one who loves his brother. This is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who is of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. In other words, there's a distinction between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There's a distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So from the very beginning, one line righteous, the other unrighteous. One just, the other unjust. And the relationship between those two lines is characterized by enmity. God says, I will place enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Now that enmity is displayed in the image that is drawn for us in Revelation chapter 12, verse four. We see that enmity being played out. The dragon stood before the woman, verse four, who was ready to give birth, ready to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's representative of enmity, enmity between the two lines. Now notice the focus of the dragon. At this point, his primary concern is not the woman. He stands before the woman. His primary concern is the child that she's about to give birth to. That's going to change in Revelation chapter 12, so we work through the chapter. That child is going to be caught up to heaven, caught up to his throne, and Satan is going to be cast out of heaven. The dragon then focuses attention upon the woman 
and her seed. He goes to make war with the rest of his offspring, with the rest of her offspring. We're going to look at that as we work through Revelation 12. For now, he stands before the woman, and his primary concern is the death of her child. The death is described as a devouring, an utter consuming. He wants to utterly destroy this male child that would be born to the woman. And we're going to consider the identity of that child more carefully in verse 5, okay? But this is obviously a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a messianic text. And like many symbols, like many images in Revelation, the picture that's painted for us in verse 4 is typological. It's a typological pattern. It's typological of a spiritual reality. Prior to the ascension, prior to the enthronement of Jesus Christ, when Satan was finally cast out of heaven and cast to the earth, Satan's objective in redemptive history has been to destroy him. He stands before the woman, as it were, ready to devour his ch- her child as soon as he was born. After the promise of God was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of one who would strike the head of the serpent, knowing that promise, Satan could always be seen, as it were, standing before the woman, anticipating the birth of this child. This promise dictated his activity, as it were, on the earth as he awaited the birth of this promised seed. So he was there in Genesis chapter 4, for example, when Cain was born. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John describes Cain as of the wicked one. He was of the wicked one who murdered his brother Abel. So Cain was representative of Satan, representative of the line of the serpent. He was there, think with me, he was there in Genesis chapter 6. When the seed of the serpent took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Satan appears determined to corrupt the line of the woman with apostasy. He appears to be determined to breed them out of of existence by having his seed take wives of the woman's seed of whomever they chose, as many as they chose, So in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, as a result of this plot, the wickedness of man, the mark of the serpent seed, right, that character, that conduct that distinguishes the serpent seed, the wickedness of man became great in the earth, as the Bible says, and Satan might have thought thought himself within reach of accomplishing his goal in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, when all the earth is described as filled with violence, when all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, when all flesh was evidently, obviously, the seed of the serpent, Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. Sounds like the seed of the serpent, doesn't it? The seed of the woman, if you think back with me to Genesis chapter 6, the seed of the woman was reduced to one man, a preacher of righteousness in his family. And that one man, that preacher of righteousness, God saved from the flood of his judgment in an ark of mercy and grace. That was Noah. One man, the line, the promised line had dwindled to one man and his family. That's in the days of Noah and God's judgment upon the seed of the serpent that the Lord himself, he says that those days are typological of our own day. It's very interesting. In Luke chapter 17, listen to this from verse 26. The Lord says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, they were increasing in their wickedness, sin was rampant upon the earth, the thoughts and intents of man's heart only evil continually, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. No concern. They were living their lives with no concern for the impending judgment. They were the seed of the serpent. Likewise, the Lord says, verse 28, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, 
They drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. They had no concern whatsoever for God's impending judgment. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In those days, the Lord says, there will be two men, one upon a couch, uh, two men upon a couch. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken in judgment and the other left. The Lord says that those days are typological of our own days. We're fulfilling the pattern, so to speak. God distinguishing between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we think about that through redemptive history. He was behind the kings who took for themselves Sarah, who took for themselves Rebekah. When, Dave, uh, when, the, um, when the devil uh, slandered God in the garden as a liar, God was proving himself faithful to his word by preserving the line of the woman that would bring forth the promised seed. God preserved Sarah. God preserved Rebekah. When, when Sarah was barren, God provided, didn't he? Provided them a child in her, own, in her old age. When Abraham and Sarah acted faithful, faithlessly, attempting to produce an heir through Hagar, God was faithful and gave them Isaac, even in their old age. When Abraham was on the mountain, following the Lord in faith, the dagger lifted above, above his head, concluding, Hebrews eleven nineteen 19, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. When Abraham was there with the dagger in his hand, God provided a ram as a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. And Abraham, the called, uh, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. God was proving his faithfulness to the promise. So all the while, God is patient, God is long-suffering, not willing for any of his own, any of those who had been decreed, any of those who were elect, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. And while he's being long-suffering, he is providing for his people, and he is judging the seed of the serpent. He is bringing about, bringing to fruition his redemptive plans and purposes. Nevertheless, in all of this, the serpent persists in his effort to destroy the line, the serpent persists in his uh, effort to destroy the child. And the sons of Jacob settled in Egypt, later taken into slavery, where despite their slavery, despite their harsh treatment, which has destroyed many nations over history, their slavery, their harsh treatment only eventuates in their growth. <laughs> and Israel in the furnace of Egypt grows into a mighty nation, a great nation. Satan was behind their slavery. Satan was behind the murder of the male children in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 1, when God preserved the seed of the woman by the Hebrew midwives who hid them, Moses himself delivered safely in an ark, made of bulrushes this time, not of gopher wood, but safely de delivers Moses in an ark, uh, an ark of mercy and grace, just like the first one. And we saw the deliverance of God in bringing Israel up from Egypt. God, again, faithful to his word preserved Egypt through their slavery, preserved Egypt through, or preserved Israel through the very waters of judgment that would flood Pharaoh and his army, would destroy the army. Just as Adam had succumbed to the temptations offered by the devil in the garden, so Israel succumbed to temptations offered up by the devil in the wilderness of Sinai. So Satan was there as they crafted the golden calf. Satan was there, so to speak, in the mouths, in the words of the 10 spies who offered a bad report of the land. He was there fighting against Israel as they struggled to take possession of the land, leaving future thorns in the side of Israel that would tempt Israel into idolatry. The line that would produce the promised seed was narrowed to David the king with the Davidic covenant 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David would live through countless attempts on his life. The wicked queen, Athaliah, would later attempt to kill every heir in the line of David, succeeding to kill every one of them, save one, Joash, who was hidden away in the house of the Lord. Satan was there to destroy the Davidic line now. In Isaiah chapter 7, the idolatrous northern kingdom and the king of Syria plot to overthrow the throne of David, currently held by Ahaz, king of Judah. Listen to this from Isaiah 7, verse 6. This is Syria and Ahaz, king of, um, Syria and the northern kingdom plotting to overthrow Ahaz, the king of Judah. Verse 6, they say together, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in his wall for ourselves and set a king over them, a son of Tabal. In other words, we're going to destroy the Davidic line and set up a son, set up a king for ourselves. Let us destroy the line of David. God tells King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, don't let that trouble you. Why? Because God is faithful to his word. And God has determined that he's going to preserve this line of the woman who would produce the promised seed. That line is not going anywhere. God tells King Ahaz, it shall not stand. And he tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ahaz didn't believe God. And so God says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Ahaz, Ahaz refuses. And so he gives Ahaz a sign anyway that he's going to preserve the Davidic line. In verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's an awesome promise in Isaiah chapter seven, right? When it appeared as though the Davidic line would come under great persecution, and would be killed off, God tells unbelieving Ahaz, I'm going to do it. Don't let, that, don't let that trouble you. The line of David will not be destroyed. I'm going to preserve it because I have promised that I'm going to bring about my promised seed, a, mess, a Messiah, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And my promise will stand. I will accomplish all my word. I'm faithful to my word. And he says, you don't believe me, Ahaz? Ask for a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. Ahaz refuses, and God gives him the sign of the promised virgin who would give birth to the Messiah. It's a tremendous promise. Just God faithful to his word. And if you can't see a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah, then you are blind to the Bible, <laughs> blind to God's word. The prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ are all over the Bible, and it's absolutely awesome. In that case, in the promise of Isaiah chapter 7 that a, a virgin would give birth and conceive a child... The woman isn't only barren like Sarah was. She wasn't barren like Rebecca was. She was a virgin. <laughs> and Satan, uh, again, there we see him waiting to devour the child as soon as he was born. Satan was behind the attack of Haman in the book of Esther as Haman was determined to destroy all of the Jews. As he plotted the slaughter of Jews. He was behind the idolatrous practice of Israel in sacrificing and murdering her own children to the false gods of the nation. Have you ever thought, why, why in the world, how, the depths to which Israel had sunk, that they would offer up their own children to Moloch, would make them pass through the fire, would murder their own children and sacrifice to a false god? It's amazing the depths to which Israel sunk in their idolatry. Satan was behind all of that. Psalm 106 explains that they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. And all the while, all the while, through all of this, while the, while the serpent 
stands there before the woman waiting to devour her child, God is faithful to his word. God continues to preserve the line. As it would appear to human eyes against all odds, God is faithful to his word. God preserves the line. The Abrahamic line, the Davidic line, both would be preserved through centuries of warfare, through centuries of bloodshed, and they would converge. That line of the woman, and in particular now the line of David, would converge in the marriage of both Joseph and Mary, who would give birth to a male child. If you look at both those, it's, a, it's astounding, really, that um, those two lines, both from the line of David, would converge and result in the birth of Jesus Christ. This child that the woman gave birth to, destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, was a child who was destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. He was prophesied in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. God says, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the child who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. There at the birth of the child, at the birth of the Messiah, the dragon stands waiting to devour. In Matthew chapter two, we read of Herod's scheme to put to death all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. He carried out that decree. All the male children in Bethlehem, two and under, were killed, were murdered by Herod, Satan behind the attack. As always, God is faithful to provide. He leads the woman and her child into the wilderness of Egypt so that, I quote, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. All the while, God decreeing, carrying out, executing in his providence, all things whatsoever that come to pass. As Adam had succeeded, had succumbed to the temptations offered up by the devil in the garden, and as Israel had succumbed to the temptations offered up by the devil in the wilderness of Sinai, so Satan was there in the wilderness to tempt Jesus Christ. And Christ overcame him. Satan was there again at the cross. Satan was there again when it appeared as though Satan were to win a great victory. The Lord would be crucified. It would appear as though he had finally won the day. He was behind the mob that irrationally shouted for his crucifixion with no cause. He was behind their envy that led to that egregious sin. It was his way of thinking. It was his mindset, so to speak, that it infected, corrupted, and perverted the minds of those people. It was his way of thinking that had taken root in his seed. They were doing what their father had done from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. However, all of that, God was being faithful to his word. In the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, Abraham had said, on the same mountain, which now the Lord is being crucified. His promised seed, having been bruised on his heel, as it were, would now deal a death blow to the head of the serpent and be raised from the dead, conquering death itself. Through the entire course, that's just a representative series of examples. Through the entire course of redemptive history, the devil can be seen standing by, waiting to devour the child as soon as he was born. And God is there supernaturally preserving, supernaturally protecting the promised seed from the constant threat of imminent death. And that is a pattern, brothers and sisters, that is typological of our own day. Uh, as we face the trials and tribulations that we face in the wilderness of this present age, we're facing persecution and suffering 
in the same way that saints throughout history have faced persecution and suffering. Now, the serpent no longer standing before the woman, waiting for her to deliver her child so that he can devour her child, Satan has now been cast to the earth and is now enraged with the woman, knowing that he has a short time, and so now is determined to persecute the woman and to make war with the rest of her offspring. We're gonna see that as we work through Revelation 12. So then, Revelation chapter 12, verse five, she bore a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In verse 13, the dragon then persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the pattern established in the relationship between the dragon and the promised seed would now be continued in the relationship between the dragon and her other offspring. Enraged with a woman, he now hunts those, verse 17, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is, as Peter says, a prowling, he is as a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. Using the same word there. In other words, those who bear the characteristic marks of the seed of the woman, those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who bear those characteristic marks of being the corporate seed of the woman, we see that enraged dragon now pursuing them and persecuting them. We see that enraged dragon pursuing the saints throughout the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts. He is after, they've got the dragon breathing down their necks. We see him eventually killing all of the apostles. All of them martyred for their faith. John here, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, would eventually die, die in exile. He was essentially martyred for, this, for his faith. Killing the apostles, martyring saints, John writing in exile. And all, like their Lord, God has promised to raise at the last day. As sure as he has been faithful in preserving the line of the woman throughout history, in order to bring forth the promised Messiah, he is faithful to his word to raise up those who are united to that Messiah in their union with him on the last day. He will usher them into the kingdom of his son. He is faithful to his word. The Lord has provided, just like he did with Abraham on the mountain, the Lord has provided a sacrifice in their place. Brothers and sisters, there is a dragon breathing down our necks. Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's um, easy to forget that. And we get caught up in our day-to-day -day lives. But remember, this is not a battle that takes place across an open field with troops lined up with muskets in their hand facing one another. It's not a battle like that. It's not a physical battle. We don't fight flesh and blood. We war against principalities and powers. It's a war. It's a battleground of ideologies. It's a battleground of philosophies. The dragon breathing down your neck wants to get into your head, wants to get into your heart. The way that he does that is by corrupting, polluting, and perverting the way that you think, what you value, what you believe, what you think is important, what you don't think is important. The dragon has a massive and highly effective propaganda machine that he has worked to masterful effectiveness in this world. And we are under constant assault by that machine you live under the threat of imminent death. The dragon no longer standing before the woman to devour her child, the dragon now prowling around waiting to devour you. And frankly, brothers and sisters, the one who is found on the edge of his flock is lunch. 
We've got to cling. We have to abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. We need one another. We need the church. Dragon stands by waiting. He speaks through wicked ideologies and philosophies. He labors to separate you from the body. In all of that and knowing that, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that this is typological of our age, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be prepared to suffer. Now, we've, we've had our fair share of suffering around here, uh, going through difficulty, facing trials and tribulations together. That's very real suffering. And brothers and sisters, as you take a stand for righteousness in the midst of that difficulty, you are, as the Bible says, you are filling up in your flesh the afflictions that are lacking in Christ. You are filling up that measure of the affliction that will be experienced by the Lord's church during this time of our tribulation. We will go through, we have gone through, and will go through persecution. We will suffer. We need to be prepared to suffer. But brothers and sisters, that's going to increase. It's not going to decrease. It doesn't go away. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. These perilous times are growing more and more perilous. And if you're identified with the woman, if you're identified with him, the promised seed, if you're in union with him, then this is to be expected. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He who endures to the end will be saved. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the Lord, uh, Paul says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Stand fast. How? Why? You stand fast in the face of difficulty. Stand fast in the face of temptations not to stand fast. <laughs> You stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. The fact that we face adversaries is to be expected. It is an evidence of our calling and election. We have been called to this, Paul is saying. Listen, to them that difficulty, that adversity, is a proof of their perdition. They are the causes of it. But to you, it is evidence of your salvation and that from God. Because, verse 29, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted for you to suffer. It has been granted for our church to suffer. It has been granted for the people of God to suffer. Why? Because that lion, that dragon that stands before the woman is now enraged with her and he seeks whom he may devour. We are, as evidenced by that, the Lord says, we are the promised seed. And because we are identified with, in union with the seed who is the Lord Jesus Christ, we are described as those who keep the commandments of our God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because we are identified with him and because we have that testimony, we're going to face difficulty, adversity, trial, and tribulation. And all the while, in the same way, in the very same way that through redemptive history, God preserved the seed of the woman in order to bring forth the promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent, God will preserve the seed of the woman through this age too. 
We are invincible until he's done with us. We're invincible until he calls us home or until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And then we will be invincible into eternity, right? He will raise us up on the last day because he is faithful to his word. It is the Lord himself who provides, protects, and preserves. And we have a history of faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his word to prove that to us. We merely need to look to him in faith and in hope. In Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, Paul says this. This is a command. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Some people make mistakes of thinking there. When Paul mentions doctrine, that he's specifically speaking only of the doctrine of the Trinity. So you avoid that person who doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the atonement. Someone who doesn't have the doctrine of the atonement right, who's causing divisions with that false doctrine, you avoid him. Now that refers to all of the, the content of our faith and practice as the church. Paul says, note those who cause divisions, who cause offenses contrary to what I've taught you. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, the truth, that good instruction which you've learned, and avoid them. Why? Because those who are such, those who cause divisions, they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And that should be evident. What end is accomplished through their division? It satisfies them, serves their own purposes. It does not lend to or tend to the unity and peace and edification of the Lord's body. Their God is their belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. We've seen that, haven't we? Deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience, Paul says, has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Devote your attention to learning the Bible. Devote your attention to learning that good doctrine. Devote your attention to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Be wise in what is good. Be simple. Be ignorant with respect to evil, so to speak. Simple concerning evil. And here's this promise, verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? So in all of that, we come full circle, don't we? To back to the church. And that being typological of our own age, our own experience as the church. The Lord Jesus Christ was the promised seed. God had promised the Messiah, one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, would reverse the curse, so to speak, and usher in a new creation, usher in a kingdom of righteousness for all eternity, the dominion which will never pass away. God promised that singular seed of the woman, but God also promised a corporate seed in union with him. And just as our Lord had Satan crushed under his feet. We, brothers and sisters, in union with him, well, he'll be crushed under our feet also as we endure and persevere to the end. Satan, he says, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And that's a promise from God, and God is faithful to his word, amen? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. So we uh, do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers. Behind those apparent flesh and blood enemies that we may face or difficulties that we may face, circumstances that we may face, behind them is, a, is an enemy that is spiritual, that battles with uh, ideologies and philosophies. And Paul says we're to avoid those who are united with him, avoid those who cause division, and we are to serve our Lord Jesus Christ.
being wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. We have this promise of God that he will crush Satan under our feet shortly. Paul ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this promise in your word. Thank you for this good instruction. Thank you for teaching us. Lord, I pray that uh, none of us would be foolish uh, with these instructions and would not adhere to them. Uh, Your word is life to us, health to our bones, and we need your word. We need to heed your instruction. It is for our good and for your glory. So help us to do that. Strengthen us to do that. I pray that we'd be be wise in what is good, foolish toward what is or simple uh, concerning that which is evil. And that, Lord, you would uh, bless our efforts to live for you during this wicked and perverse time, this perverse generation in which we live. You would um, expose the unfruitful works of darkness and would lead us in truths and truth, in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And ultimately in all of that, our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified as he brings many sons to glory. Be with us as we strive to live for you, strengthen us by your spirit, and help us, Lord, to go. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.